0: All right, we are back. Let's do a few obituaries, as we like to do on this program, but because the passing of some notables, I think, should be remarked upon. First off, with George Carlin. Carlin uh, died last week of heart failure. He was, surely, along with Lenny Bruce and Richard Pryor, uh, the, the pioneers of subversive stand-up comedy. You know, if you're older than 50, you can probably remember the original George Carlin, as he used to be on the, uh, on the Ed Sullivan Show, The Tonight Show, and something like 80 spots on TV. It was pretty mainstream comedy and pretty good. But uh, Carlin said he found mainstream acceptance as dinky and hollow as a gratuitous pratfall, noting, I was a traitor in so many words. I was living a lie. So it was in 1970, George Carlin traded his suit and clean-cut persona for a beard, long hair, and jeans. He then developed observational humor that focused on such hot-button issues as drugs, the war in Vietnam, religion, and sex. And his irreverent social insights frequently used blue language. Wasn't a good career move for George at first, or so it seemed. Uh, He was thrown out of Las Vegas twice and temporarily banned by Johnny Carson. But he found a niche in coffee houses, concert halls, and on college campuses and worked his way back to the top. Unfortunately, at the end of his career, Carlin was addicted to cocaine, Vicodin, and alcohol, at least at one point or another, and had suffered three heart attacks. Perhaps uh, you saw him a year and a half ago when he came uh, to Sacramento. Uh, Obituaries noted that increasingly his routines resembled rants, and many critics found his anger to be off-putting. George Carlin was indeed an angry man at the end, and I think it had to do with that quote we started off the show with. Uh, Said Carlin, scratch any cynic and you'll find a disappointed idealist. Still in all, his body of work is a national treasure. And I think all of us will still be laughing at George Carlin's jokes for a long, long time. And we note uh, with sadness, the passing of General Motors heir, Stuart R. Mott, who died uh, a couple weeks back. Mr. Mott uh, was one of the country's most visible and controversial activists. He invested heavily in causes, including population control, abortion rights, and arms reduction. Three of the most, um, most worthy causes we can think of. Mott was also a chief financial backer of two anti-war presidential candidates, Democratic Senator Eugene McCarthy in 1968 and Senator George McGovern in 1972. Mott was a man who used his family fortune to good ends. Always a maverick, he once lived on a Chinese junk on the Hudson River, but exchanged it for a Manhattan penthouse, where he then cultivated a garden with hundreds of vegetable varieties. Purportedly, neighbors were not pleased when his agricultural interest led him to construct a compost pile and chicken coop. Mott was described in profiles as an easygoing maverick with little regard for discretion in discussing his political interest, finances, or romantic conquests. But it was said that beneath the surface, eccentricity was a determination to confront the threat of nuclear war and the global population explosion. Stuart R. Mott, he will be missed. One hopes that uh, other members of his family will carry on in his tradition. I want to note briefly the passing of uh, George E. Moore, Dr. George E. Moore. He was a cancer researcher who found an early association between chewing tobacco and mouth cancer. It was in 1954 with colleagues at the Roswell Park Cancer Institute and the University of Minnesota that he published a pioneering study of male patients with cancer of the mouth, reporting that a majority had been tobacco users for significant periods of time. The study became persuasive supporting evidence in making the American Cancer Society's case about the manifold dangers of using any tobacco, not just cigarettes. And we'd like uh, to note also the passing of uh, a local naturalist, Mike Weber. He was known as this region's Johnny Acorn Seed. Mr. Weber is credited with being responsible for forests of young oak trees in this region. It was he who helped persuade the Sacramento city and county to declare 1985 the year of the oak, and he worked with the Sacramento Tree Foundation to plant 10,000 native oaks that year alone. Mike Weber gathered and stored thousands of acorns in coffee cans until shoots sprouted and then handed out the seeds at schools, public meetings, and community events. Said to the California Tree Foundation Executive Director Ray Truthaway, there just wasn't a stronger voice for the native landscape in California than Mike. And you know, uh, when I find myself in the Davis campus certain times of year, there are so many acorns around that it's astounding. We we ought to start gathering those up and getting some sprouts and planting them. I know uh, where I grew up, uh, down in Fremont, uh, the oak trees up on the hills behind where my uh, mom lives look to be the same oak trees that were there 50 years ago. And sadly, I can now make a comparison of a half century. But I understand that the wildlife, deer, etc., just mow down uh, young oaks. So they may need to be maybe sprouted and raised up to a certain size to survive. Anyway, we'll see if we can't talk to the California Tree Foundation this summer. They are a very worthy group. I've had a chance to talk to them a couple times when hosting over at Insight on Capitol Public Radio. And uh, I think we need to bring them to Radio Parallax as well. All right, let's do a couple more science topics. A uh, curious article came out uh, a week or two about... Um, about some scientists studying the planet Mars and, and what, they're, what they're examining has to do with where the Mars polar lander has come down. It's digging in the soil and finding that uh, the slightly alkaline soil would, would be a great place to go uh, plant uh, earth crops and have them you know, grow well. Of course, that's under, under sealed greenhouse conditions. But the question is, is the soil good enough to support uh, agriculture? And uh, the, ana- the analysis shows that the answer appears to be Yes. But that lander has put down in uh, Mars's northern hemisphere, near the North Pole, which is a very smooth hemisphere uh, covered by low-lying planes. It's been noted for quite some time that the lower half of Mars, the southern half, is a lot different than the northern half. And now, uh, scientists at uh, NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory have recreated uh, a collision that may have taken place in the early days of the solar system and found that uh, the simulation explains the difference in the hemispheres. The paper that was in uh, the journal Nature, the researchers think an asteroid or comet whacked Mars 4 billion years ago and blasted away much of its northern crust. New calculations reveal a crater known as the Borealis Basin measures 5,300 miles across and 6,600 miles long, which is the size of Asia, Europe, and Australia combined. Of course, we're awaiting the, uh, the final analysis using the scoop to dig up uh, dirt, and, and uh, well, you know, as you know, we will continue to follow that one. An item from where the law meets the culinary arts, and it's not often I get to say that, California Assemblywoman Carol Liu has introduced a bill which allows Korean-American restaurants to store their traditional rice cakes at room temperature. Evidently, officials at the Los Angeles County Department of Health Services had begun policing the cakes, fearing that the food's water content allowed bacteria to flourish when they, when they were not refrigerated. Article B notes that unlike the flat, feather-light rice cakes sold in health food aisles, Korean rice cakes are soft and gooey. Keeping them refrigerated made them hard and unsavory, restaurant owners contended. A little blurb in the bee by Philip Reese noted that back in the 1980s, Art Tories, then a state assembly representing the L.A.'s Chinatown, pushed through legislation allowing Chinese-style roast duck to be hung in shop windows. Apparently, as the result of Tories' bill, chefs today can hang Chinese roast duck at room temperature for up to four hours after cooking. And as we close, I want to do one final obituary, just because I just have to quote from this one. It's from the Economist, noting the passing of John Reginald Sirdeval Routh. Said the uh, said the Economist, he could have gone into the army like his father. His liking for footnotes might have suited him to be historian. If his lion's mane of hair had been clipped a bit, and his shaggy eyebrows had been half disguised by a bowler, he might have cut a figure in the city, for the accent was right. But what Jonathan Routh preferred to do was dress up as a tree waited a bus stop, and inquired which bus would take him to Sherwood Forest. Ralph once attempted to take a grand piano onto the London Underground, and he persuaded a crowd of tourists that Nelson's column needed holding up. Go to the magazine, his notion for a day's work was to ask a passerby for tuppence for a cup of tea, and having got the money, produce a thermos, milk, and sugar for the astonished benefactor, and inquire whether he wanted one lump or two. Anyway, for many years, Routh was on the British television version of Candid Camera. But apparently after the, the run of the show, Routh continued, continued to lead a prankish and otherworldly life. Jonathan Routh, we salute him. He's our kind of guy. And let's close with the words of George Carlin. Said Carlin, Seems to be it wasn't long ago that when an old person died, the undertaker put him in a coffin and you sent flowers to the funeral home where the mortician held awake. Then after the funeral, they put him in a hearse and drove him to the cemetery where they buried his body in a grave. Now, when a senior citizen passes away, he's placed in a burial container and you send floral tributes to the slumber room where the grief therapist supervises the viewing. After the memorial service, the funeral coach transports the departed to the Garden of Remembrance, where his earthly remains are interred in their final resting place. Said George, hey, death is almost fun these days. All right, that does it for the show. Our thanks to Robert Scheer. He certainly has some important words about America's military-industrial complex. We're sure to have some fun on next week's program. We're going to speak with Dr. James Kakalios, the author of The Physics of Superheroes. Uh, That promises to be very enjoyable. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week at the same time.